Hello, and welcome to the RSE's Tea and Talk podcast series, a programme inspired by the coffee houses of the 18th century, where great thinkers would come together to discuss ideas and matters of the day. I'm Rebecca Widderfield, and I'm Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, which is Scotland's National Academy. Our mission is to advance learning and make knowledge useful. And to do that, we are holding conversations with some of our fellows and other leading experts in Scotland to talk about important issues and the challenges that we face as a society. You can find out more about our work on our website at rse.org.uk. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Gordon Masterton and Professor Ian Doherty. Gordon is Chair of Future Infrastructure at the University of Edinburgh and has a wealth of experience advising on transport and infrastructure projects, including Crossrail and HS2. Ian is Dean of the Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of Stirling, a leading researcher of transport and mobility and a former non-executive director of ScotRail. With such a wealth of experience and expertise, who better than Gordon and Ian to talk to us today about transport, mobility and climate change? And Gordon, I wonder if I can come to, to you first. We know that transport is clearly a major source of emissions around the world, but how well has the transport sector been doing in reducing emissions and decarbonising the system? Well, sadly, very, very poorly, uh, actually, and Scotland's no exception to the, the general UK trend. Um, if you look at the figures between 1990, when we really became seriously aware of climate change issues and uh, carbon reduction, uh, between 1919 and 2018, before the pandemic, there was a negligible reduction. You know, you're talking 14.8 megatons of uh, CO2, reducing to 14.6. So unlike the energy sector, it, it's been a, a laggard in making any inroads into reducing our uh, net zero uh, greenhouse gas emissions for the last 30 years. And, and why do you think that is? Is that is that about people are travelling more, notwithstanding low carbon technologies coming in, or is it just there hasn't been the advances in, in technology in that sector in the way there maybe has elsewhere? Uh, it, it's a combination of the reluctance to make behavioural changes in the way that we travel, uh, poor developments in, in technology for sure. We're, we're starting to see them now. They're, they're coming through, but they haven't had the opportunity to make an impact. Uh, and in steady increase in, in usage of transport over the last 30 years, offsetting the benefits of uh, journey, journey reductions of, uh, in carbon usage. So the, that combination, uh, one out performing uh, and another underperforming through the increase in demand uh, has led to a, a pretty much level playing field for the last 30 years um, and reluctance to change from the private car as the principal means of getting from A to B uh, and public transport in favour of public transport or, or walking and cycling. So it sounds like there's, there's quite a challenge there that the emissions are, are large and not not decreasing. So I mean, I mean, Ian, maybe coming to you in, in, in headline terms, um, how do we make our transport systems uh, more compatible with, with climate goals? Is, is this all about electric vehicles? Um, and, and what does net zero look like, I guess, for transport? We hear a lot about net zero, but what does that actually look like in practice? First of all, I'd agree with everything that Gordon said there about the, the general state of play, as it were. And I'd possibly be even more pessimistic, I think. So if you look at what's happened 
in recent years, and we might want to talk about the impact of the pandemic and what that means for the future later. But if you look at the period in the run-up to the pandemic, a lot of things are actually getting worse in the transport sector. So, um, you know, emissions began to fall. But then as the economy recovered after the global financial crisis, they actually started to increase in the transport sector in Scotland again. Um, and what's really important to understand about that is that's driven by our behaviours, I think, collectively. And um, transport is roughly 40% of our total emissions inventory. And of that, 40%, 40% is the private car. And what's happened in recent years is that um, all the technological efficiencies in existing engines that the, uh, the auto industry has brought in, largely in the back of regulations the European Commission and others, it's all been cancelled out by our um, buying behaviour and buying larger cars. So, you know, if you go and have a wander around um, even the most densely populated part of our cities and look at what the vehicles that are driven around today look like, they're bigger and heavier and use more fuel, by and large, than the ones that we had uh, even 10 years ago. So, you know, many things are actually getting worse rather than better. And so far in the transport sector, at least, we've, we've cancelled out technological improvement through um, behavioural change. It's gone in the wrong direction. So fixing that is not going to be easy. The average um, lifespan of a car is about 15 years. So even if we were to ban the sale of petrol and diesel vehicles on Monday morning, we'd still have this big wash through of the existing vehicles in the fleet um, that are increasingly polluting in recent years. And so it's not something we can change overnight unless we, we have drastic regulation. I don't think anybody's actually proposing. So it's a bit of a myth to say that the transfer from um, internal combustion engine vehicles to electric or hydrogen ones is going to, to do what we need. We simply can't do it fast enough. And that's setting aside a whole series of debates about whether there are enough minerals to, to build that many batteries and what the geopolitics of a world dependent on those kind of technologies will look like. In simple terms, it's too late to rely on technology and to get us out of this problem. So we are going to have to change our behaviour. And that starts by travelling less. How do we build support for, for that sort of change? Because um, I think I think there is, a, there is, I'm sure, a section of the community that think if we move to electric cars, that that is the solution, that we're doing our bit. So how do we get what I think what you're talking about is quite a transformational change in the way we live our lives? So one of the things that characterises the transport sector is it's, it's, it's one of those domains in um, economic and social life where inequality plays out probably as obviously as in any other. So, you know, I call what you've, You've just spoken about that my next BMW be an electric one fallacy because people think that that's all they need to do. But those people are actually quite a small subset of the overall population because they, they own expensive cars and use them a lot. Whereas lots of people here in Scotland, something like a third of, of the population still don't have access to a car at all anyway. So there's this huge um, disparity in the, the life chances and the accessibility to and to services, to education, to employment across different places and different communities that's driven by how the transport system operates. So it's like all areas of um, political debate, I suppose, about inequality and redistribution. We've somehow got to create a political um, consensus or at least enough of one that begins to shift that and does it quickly. One of the things that's been most interesting to me observing um, the kind of debate and the action around COP26 rather than in the negotiations over the last couple of weeks is I think you can see the beginnings of that um, and the, the concern about the environment amongst younger people and they're less likely to um, to use cars as much as older people in most places. I think you can begin to see a kind of generational shift in this, which is possibly the most important thing that we can try and harness to change uh, opinion overall. And, and a lot of it, I agree with uh, Ian 100%. And, uh, uh, and of course, cities have got 
more opportunities for uh, step changes in the way that we offer travel. Um, I've lived in London for a number of uh, years and they wouldn't dream of using the private car down there because it's not necessary. Uh, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Dundee, Aberdeen need to get to that same position of, of being uh, having a public transport system that is good enough to not require the, the use of a, of a car. Um, Scotland has its additional challenges, of course, because of the, the geography and the rural nature of much of, of Scotland, and that's a, that's, a, that's a bigger challenge. But the, you know, changing the, the behaviours of the majority of the population will, will be a big step forward. The majority do live uh, in or near to our cities, so public transport networks. You can envisage uh, being vastly improved with net zero emission buses taking a, a bigger load of the uh, the need for transport, combined with reduction in demand as we change our habits of work, uh, and combined with uh, uh, in the inner cities uh, much more walking. I mean, I mean that does seem to play to what we know in some of the behavioural signs that actually a lot of behavioural change is about making it easy for people. So they're not actually making a conscious choice; you just make it make it easy. Um, but how well do you think we're sort of building climate change and into our planning decisions for infrastructure at uh, local and national level? I'm thinking of a conversation I had uh, another podcast just the other day with Duncan McLennan and James Curran, where we were talking about the sort of notion of the 15 to 20 minute neighbourhood. Now, again, that might not apply in all parts of Scotland, but is the planning of infrastructural decisions really thinking about this in the sort of systems holistic way that I think the two of you are talking about? Probably, probably not nearly enough, uh, uh, Rebecca. The, the 15 minute neighbourhood in, in Paris, for instance, 20 minute neighbourhoods being talked about in, uh, in, in Edinburgh and other parts of Scotland, uh, well, worth, well worth looking at. And uh, it, it will potentially result in modal shift away from some of the short, short journeys. I don't think they'll necessarily have a massive impact on on carbon reduction on the national scale or on the uh, international scale. Of course, uh, that goes without saying. Uh, but uh, the, the we we need so many tools in the toolbox right now to make an impact on uh, reduction uh, in our transport emissions that that anything is worthwhile developing. We just need to be trying more things more frequently, faster. Uh, and accept that some of the solutions might not be enough. Uh, some of them will be very promising and will do more of. And and 20-minute neighbourhoods make so much sense, especially in a post-pandemic world where we learned a lot about the, uh, the need for uh, essential journeys as opposed to discretionary journeys uh, and the way that we, that we shop, the way that we get goods. And, of course, that's, that's also pushed up the delivery of, of, of products and services to our houses, uh, uh, which is a, a, an issue that will, will continue and needs to be addressed. Trucks are probably the most challenging of the, the vehicles to, to uh, change into net zero emission delivery pods. They're, they're well away from the technology is, is, is well short of buses and trains, for example, for getting to net zero emissions. So we've got a lot lots of challenges yet to be faced that even a 20-minute neighbourhood in its own right will not solve, but there could be, it, it could and should be part of the, the, the mix of solutions in a fully systems or systems approach. And thinking about, about COVID, because I was, I was going to come on to that, is there, is there anything we can take from COVID in terms of 
actually the changes in mobility that we witnessed, the changes in, in purchasing that, you know, are, are these just a short term blip or do we think this will sort of herald a sort of longer term change? I, I know, Ian, that's an area you've looked at in terms of COVID and mobility. Is this something longer term or will we go back to business as usual in six months, a year's time? Yes, so I'm, I'm involved in quite a large research project with colleagues at the University of Leeds looking at this and we've done um, like four waves of survey and interview work trying to understand what's been going on. And we still don't know, Rebecca is the answer, I think. Um, there's increasing speculation that this is going to be a really difficult winter for a whole set of reasons and I think a lot of people are expecting some um, further retrenchment in terms of the use of public transport as some stronger restrictions for COVID or the COVID and flu combination come in. So we're at the situation now where we've only got about half the number of people using the train that they did pre-COVID and roughly 70% using the bus. So we've seen you know, an absolutely unprecedented fall in public transport usage. It's important to say, though, that what we haven't seen really is a shift of journeys from public transport to car. What's happened is that people are simply not making the trips they used to do by public transport. So, for example, you know, I'm... I'm a rail enthusiast, been involved in the industry for years. I haven't been on a train in Scotland for something like 19 months now. I simply haven't had to make those journeys. Not that I've been replacing them by car trips. And you can see that repeated all across the economy. It's the city centre, white collar office economies that the public transport network increasingly over the last 20 years was, was kind of reorientated to serve best that have suffered most during COVID. So that's problematic in itself for obvious reasons, but it also means there's a massive financial gap in terms of the public support that's going to be required to keep the network in some um, state going until we're able to rebuild patronage. Because as Gordon says, we can't get to net zero. There's no realistic pathway to achieve that without a much greater and more intensive use of the public transport networks we've already got. That's right. And I think there is uh, you know, COVID anxiety about t- taking decisions to, to use public transport. Um, some people have to, in any event, as their only as their only means of travel. I have travelled by train uh, since since the, the lockdown eased, uh, but I've chosen it for trips to London. Uh, I've chosen the sleeper because I'm 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 in a I'm in a pod. It costs me a lot more. I can afford to do that, but that's not a solution for that everybody has the discretion to 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 do, um, and it'll take a while. Uh, but all of the transport modelling forecasts, of course, have been built and were created in a pre-COVID world uh, that have been following the increasing demand and the increasing success of, of rail as a, a means of moving large volumes of people uh, very effectively. Um, and we, I, I think it is early. It's very, someone once said, it's, it's really hard to make predictions, especially about the future. Um, and we're in that interesting territory where we don't really know what the longer term, even the medium term impacts of uh, the pandemic are, are likely to be on the transport sector. But where people like Ian and, and others are researching uh, and, and getting live data. And one, one good thing about information technology nowadays is we can analyse data far more uh, effectively on a far larger scale and far quicker than we used to be able to. So we should be able to see trends emerging quite quickly as we come out of, we let's hope, uh, pandemic anxiety. At the, at the risk of making this the tone of this conversation, Rebecca, even more pessimistic than it already is, um, there's a couple of things that I think we do know already that are I find really disappointing. So you'll probably remember that 
there was actually a lot of optimism about the potential for increased walking and cycling in the hard lockdown that we had in 2020. And there was a bit of an increase in both. And we don't actually know how much because we don't measure how much people walk very accurately. So that's that's a bit of a problem. But I'm, I mean, I'm really disappointed that we're starting to see quite a few of the pop-up walking and cycling schemes that were about reallocating road space away from cars to active travel. They're beginning to be taken out in various places across Scotland. And I think that's that's absolutely um, the wrong message. And particularly if you look at when people are using their cars, there isn't the kind of horns of the peak um, to anything like the previous extent. And until quite recently, actually, the busiest time of day on the roads um, and even for public transport demand had moved to the early afternoon or lunchtime. And that does suggest that lots of people are making kind of discretionary trips in their cars because they're at home and they're not they're not sat in their office. So, you know, I look out the window at mine and it mine hasn't gone anywhere, but I could hop in it and, and do various things if I wanted to and because I'm working at home and, and not from the office. So I think I think there's more to be explored there. The other thing, of course, that's happened is that um, van traffic is now significantly above pre-pandemic levels in most places. And some estimates have got light van traffic as 115 120% of what we'd have seen in 2019. And that, of course, is driven by all of us on our devices like this going by now um, when we're surfing the web and looking at Amazon in the background of whatever meeting we're, we're listening into at the time. So, you know, there are habits that we're quietly embedding in people's everyday lives that are actually potentially really negative in terms of the decarbonisation trajectory. And as yet, that hasn't made it into the public debate. And I find that quite concerning. And trucks and vans uh, are are probably the the furthest behind in terms of transitioning to to, to net zero uh, uh, fuels uh, or means of propulsion. And something else we, we haven't really talked about regulation yet, which is the kind of flip side of all of the um, the behavioural conversation. You know, if if I go on to you know Amazon, other websites that are available, but let's use the one that people use most as an example, and I have a basket of half a different items, I could have four or five different vans from different companies delivering those things to me. Um, and so, you know, we, we don't have effective regulation for the internet retailing world that we now inhabit. And the carbon impacts of that one change are really very substantial. Can you see that coming? I mean, there's obviously been a lot of talk about regulating um, social media and, and more reg- more regulatory approach to other things. Can you see that sort of regulation coming in at any point? Well, you know, there was, there was beginnings of that conversation. So Transport for London, um, in one of its consultations about the future of Freight in London, I think about three or four years ago now, uh, raised the possibility of somehow regulating private deliveries from light vans. And TfL were particularly worried about it because, of course, at that point, people were ordering stuff online for collection in their offices in central London. So there was the the problem that a lot of the the good work of congestion charging could have been undone by all that van traffic. And the howls of protest, it has to be said, when that idea was floated in that TfL document were, you know, really quite substantial. And again, there's another thing we could talk about, about how the war on the motorists and uh, um, those, those voices in the debate that, that seek to minimise regulation of, of transport always seem to get you know, very loud coverage in the media, despite the fact they might not be as representative as you might think. So we're in a classic problem here that regulatory change is really slow um, and often far too slow to respond to market innovation. Of course, the point of regulation is to try and minimise the, the externalities through uh, that result from market activity, but I really worry that we've become so um, so used to being able to have things delivered to us almost on demand. You know, turn the TV adverts on before Christmas now, and it's about same day delivery 
from your favorite website and even delivery of food in the next hour from your local supermarket. So we're creating this kind of on-demand culture, which um, suggests more and more um, transport rather than less. And that, and that doesn't seem to be a conversation that's hugely happening. I'm just thinking, you know, it, I don't have a car, um, but I do get a supermarket delivery because I live at the top of a hill and it's it's difficult to, to sort of do that travel and I, I order other things online. But, you know, it's difficult to sort of get a sense of your carbon impact and really necessarily know what to do for the best and, and what the trade-offs are. How can we make that easier for people? I mean, I know in the past there's been talk about carbon budgets and there's obviously various carbon tools that you can look at, particularly when if you're taking a flight. But how do we sort of get a better understanding as individuals about our carbon impact and the way in which we can minimise it, given that so much of this, at the end of the day, will come down to us and how we live our lives. Yeah, there's a couple of answers to that. Um, one of them is the kind of, let's say, the bottom-up and the, the behavioural or even the nudge idea, which is about giving people more information about the real impacts of their choices and kind of over time you begin to change them. So you know, there's a problem there, of course, about how much time we've got left. I think what's interesting and what you can piece together excuse me, from recent trends is that if you try and persuade people to change their transport habits and practices for reasons other than transport or carbon, you might have better luck. So one little piece of, of evidence I'd cite in respect of that is that the big boom in cycling that we had, big spike in the first lockdown, wasn't about people using the bike to get to work because they weren't working in their office. It was they thought, this is a really good use of my leisure time and a lot of people quite like the health and well-being benefits they got from being more active. So it's, it's kind of reasonably well established in the transport behaviour literature that focusing on individuals' health and well-being benefits is a good way to get them um, into taking different transport choices. The problem, of course, is that we need so much more of that, so much more quickly than we planned for in the past, that I have doubts about whether that's you know much of a meaningful strategy given the pace of change that we now need, which I'm afraid maybe this just plays to my um, dirigist preferences or prejudices but you know i think it's a bit like smoking the time's come for regulation you know we've, we've asked people nicely to change what they do for a long time but we've actually got to start to force behavior change um, and really interesting to me the scottish government has um, looked at the evidence about how we need to reduce car use and come up with this target to reduce the overall number of car kilometers in scotland by 20 percent within a decade that's a much bigger and more fundamental um, behavior shift in transport than we've seen for decades. Really pleased they've done that. I'm going to be very interested to see how they actually um, go about implementing it because I think it means one or both of, of two things. One is uh, a lot of road space reallocation, so taking space away from the car, which as we know is already problematic, or two, even more interesting stroke exciting road pricing. Gordon, you were nodding vigorously. Uh, absolutely, Ian, and I think my my bugbear about uh, the, the, the kind of uh, concentration of effort in, in all governments so far, COP26, no exception, is that it is all about setting targets. And a target isn't a plan. Uh, and the, the lack of substance at the next tier of delivering to a target is something that is a, is a concern. And the focus, having established the target, uh, should be increasing manifold in actually identifying ways, ways credible ways of getting there. Um, and that's where the systems approach uh, is really, really essential because they, it would be misguided if we uh, focused uh, on 
one particular route to solution without really fully thinking through the consequential impacts on all sorts of other areas, societal impact, uh, potential for uh, a carbon-driven divide in our society, which would be a backward step, Uh, the impact on the quality, diversity, uh, opportunities. Um, I mean, yes, you know, we, 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 we do need more active travel. That's not an option for many people. Think of you know, grannies picking up, doing childminding uh, and, and picking up or, or meeting their grandchildren. I can't really see them on their e-bikes doing that on a, on a large scale. Um, we, we, we have to think through uh, just from everyone's perspective in, a, in an empathetic way, just how, how, how we will credibly deliver behavioural changes that, that we need. Uh, and there was a good example earlier about the, you know, the, the, the new behaviour of ordering our goods online. In our heads, we may think, oh, I'm not getting out of the house, so I'm reducing my carbon emissions by ordering from online, as opposed to going to the supermarket. But when you went to the supermarket, you had multiple goods in one journey, return journey. Now they're coming individually in some cases uh, uh, you know, for, for the, the harder the hardware on top of the uh, essential food supplies. You might get the food in one delivery per week, but uh, not the other stuff. One of the things that come to mind, sorry, Rebecca, about that, which are more positive, try and get back onto that territory a bit, is you have, you have to understand that as long as we've made, tried to measure these things, and this is about 150 years, actually, we don't spend any more time travelling now than we used to do. We spend roughly almost exactly the same amount of time traveling to do the same things. So we travel to go to work. We travel to access um, essential services, food shopping, healthcare. We travel for education and we travel to see each other and to care for, for others. What transport technology has enabled us to do is to travel further to do the same things. So actually, the flip side of that is that if we decide that we need to travel a little bit less far, And again, pre-pandemic, there was some evidence that that was beginning to happen and the groups of people that travelled most were actually beginning to travel a little bit less in terms of of distance. So beginning to unwind that shouldn't really be much of an impact on most people's quality of life because it's about how we organise, as as Gordon says, our systems approach to these things and to make sure that what people need is available so they don't have to travel as far. And and that to me is where, just to come back to the, the point about 15 or 20 minute neighbourhoods I think is so important but yet so challenging. So first of all most people in Scotland the vast majority live in places that can be 15 or 20 minute neighbourhoods and interestingly this is even true in rural Scotland. Most people in rural Scotland live in small towns and small towns are the perfect 15 to 20 minute neighbourhoods. What we've done is that over decades of planning practice despite the rhetoric we've hollowed them out so that the standard small town now is the centre given over to surface car parking and the fringes given over to supermarkets with even more surface car parking. So we've hollowed them out. And, you know, we've all got our own examples of places we know well in Scotland where the town or city centre is really struggling. And that's because we moved the economy around by what we've done with the transport network. We've reduced the attractiveness of centres and made peripheral locations so much more attractive to more people because we've planned them to be like that, frankly. And we've made them easier to access by car. So we can reverse that. I don't underestimate how politically tricky that's going to be, though. So if you look at, um, again, you know, where, where have we been building housing for the last 40 years, by and large? It's in pretty low-density developments, usually on the fringes of existing places. 
they are going to be actually quite hard to retrofit, but somehow we've got to do it. And the final thing I'd say about active travel is, I mean, Gordon's right, one, one of the problems about ever having this debate about transport behaviours and choices is that, one, people feel really reticent about others telling them what to do. And that's, that's true in all kinds of areas of public policy, and we, and, and we understand that. But the other thing is that not everything has to change for everybody. What we have to do is we all have to make some changes, but they'll be different for different individuals in different places. Um, and at the risk of being provocative, I'm known as being a bit of a cycling sceptic. I really do wonder that the focus that we have on cycling and cycling infrastructure as, as it kind of dominates the debate over active travel. So I don't, I'm not for a moment saying that we don't need more of it. But walking is so much more accessible to so many more people can change the performance of local neighbourhoods and local services really quickly. Um, and many more of us, despite our health challenges or age or whatever, many, many more of us are able to put a little bit more walking into our lifestyles to help us access things more sustainably and also be healthier. So for me, um, making it easier simply to walk around is the most important thing we can do to help this debate move along. Well, as both a walker and a cyclist, I concur with everything you say. <laughs> but um, it, it, you talk there about actually the the, the challenge of, of the change that's required in sort of political t- terms. But I guess there's also quite a practical change if you're talking about sort of you know revolutionising some of the current infrastructure and re- you know going back to what's been hollowed out and replacing it, if you like. At the same time, we know from the conversations going on at, at COP26, you know, at the moment that actually we haven't got a lot of time. So how do you square that circle of the, the, the lead in time, the time for infrastructural development and, and that sort of real urgency of where we are now? I mean, Gordon, you're looking at future infrastructures. What what can you offer by way of a, a hope and, a, and a, a way forward? Well, the, the, there are you know, lots of things that can be done right now. You know, look at the look at the rail sector in the UK. We're, we're still we, we, we've still only electrified 38 percent of the, the UK rail passenger rail network. Uh, and and that that's really poor uh, and a missed opportunity to date. Um, so, you know, eliminating uh, progressively and more quickly, accelerating the program for electrification of the railway to get that to as close to 100% as we can as quickly as possible seems a a, a, a low hanging fruit. Um, net net zero you know net zero emission buses are not new technology now. There there are Plenty of solutions out there, um, some interesting variations on, on the theme, of course, from electric to, to hydrogen in Aberdeen. Uh, the, these can be delivered at scale quite quick, quite quickly. The market's there already. We could do with more you know, capability in, in Scotland to be able to uh, take, up, take up the opportunities to respond to those markets. Of course, that's another issue. Uh, but... Uh, the harder areas to to then transform are trucks and vans, uh, the delivery HGVs. That's not yet anywhere near got a clear route to uh, what is the preferred solution. Where where are the where is the market really shifting and changing? So I'm a bit more pessimistic about that. But the, the effort there needs to be on increasing research and development in a in a big way, uh, not just in an incremental way. That's part of our trouble too. Is that we 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 recognise we set targets. We recognise that there are plans for the future. And then we fold our arms and say technology will solve these 
problems and and deliver it. And there'll be a silver bullet that comes from nowhere. That that that's no plan. That's that's uh, that's uh, just not going to have a high likelihood of of success. So let's not rely on the uh, as yet unproven new technologies like Hyperloop and uh, you know ideas like that. Keep them coming. Yes, and there may be uh, you know some serious advantages that are coming out of these developments. Uh, but there's so much that can be done right now at scale if, if we really set our minds uh, to, to doing so. So what, what, what for you are the main barriers to, to that then? To, I mean, you've, you've, you've given a whole number of things there that could be done um, done now. Why, why aren't they being done now? Well, it starts with the leadership commitment, you know, public transport, and it's mainly public transport where we're talking about that's controlled by 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 government forces, whether it's through the incentives to the market or or actually controlled and owned by 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 government. More challenging, of course, for uh, <clears throat> changing people's behaviours. But if you transform public transport, you will get more people choosing to use that than uh, relying on their own car for uh, as many journeys as they currently do. Um, Ian's made a good point about also educating uh, us about about the benefits and the health benefits and the mobility benefits of of walking, perhaps cycling for those who 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 can and and choose to as as well. Uh, I suppose you wouldn't want to go backwards on that, but uh, it may be that we've overestimated the benefits or the attractiveness of of, of cycling as a a major transformation. Uh, but let's model the systems and see. And we don't do enough of that either. There isn't enough, not enough people that have got full competence and been able to do systems modeling at scale on scenario testing of future options, combination of carrot and stick legislation and education and encouragement. People inherently want to do the right thing. And there's a huge buildup of goodwill towards uh, identifying. What can we as individuals do uh, in our bit to save the planet? Uh, huge, huge goodwill there. Uh, so let's tap into that for explaining to people the choices that they are and able to make right now in transport uh, and understanding the, the, the consequences of, of those as well. So there are many things. It, it's a systems problem. It needs multiple uh, approaches in order to touch all the necessary bases. And it needs to be program managed with an iron fist because we don't have much time. Ian, anything you'd want to add to that? Yeah, I, I, I think this is where I would disagree with Gordon a little bit about the balance between carrots and sticks. I mean, so a couple of things. First of all, I subscribe to the maxim that we get the politicians we deserve. Um, and frankly, as a society, we haven't taken these issues seriously enough, whether that's... Um, the impact of how we travel around on the environment, which of course is becoming more and more front and centre in the debate. But actually, we haven't really thought very much about the impact of what we were speaking about earlier on in terms of the, the inequality that the transport system represents. We just haven't debated that properly. Um, what politicians tend to do, of course, is that for obvious reasons, carrots are much more palatable than sticks. So it's lovely to be able to stand and cut a ribbon on a new public transport scheme rather than it is to put price parking up but for me at least I think we know which one of those is actually more effective so I mean my view is that if we're going to meet our targets and um, given how long it takes to do a lot of the things we've, we've spoken about 
um, to build new infrastructure in particular, we're going to have to simply reduce the, the amount of people travel by car. And the only way we can do that quickly and effectively is to make it more expensive. That, of course, then opens up another debate about, about equity and, you know, people that are have been around this look like me a few times, be it in the Edinburgh congestion charging referendum or, or other examples of that, will know about the, the kind of squeals of protests that happen whenever you you begin to talk about these policy interventions. But one, they work. Two, the road network is the only core infrastructure we have that we don't charge people to use at the point of use. So that should be telling us something, I think, about whether that's the right decision or not. And, and finally, and I think most importantly, is we have a, a really, um, I'm tempted to use the word crass public debate about fairness when it comes to pricing. So everybody immediately says, oh, if you had road charging, then that's, that's going to be unfair. But who's it going to be unfair on? A third of people in Scotland don't have access to car and are dependent on worsening public transport services. And if we want to improve that, somebody has to pay for it. And to me, at least two things. One, the people that can afford to pay most should pay more. And the polluter pays, or at least they should. So to me, a well-designed national road charging scheme has to happen. It's the only way we can generate enough direct behavioural shift. It's the only way we can probably find the resources to do what we need to do in public transport. And in the short term, that's um, a vastly improved bus system, I think, because we can deliver that quickly and make a step change in the capacity of the network in lots of places. Um, and finally, one of the, the consequences of phasing out um, fossil fuel powered vehicles over time, of course, is that our existing tax revenue structure is based around taxing those fuels, either through um, fuel duty directly or the VAT on it or whatever. So the Treasury um, is at some point, and I think very soon, going to want to have an alternative revenue stream to replace um, those revenues that will be lost to the system. So, you know, pricing is coming. We should have a debate about the right kind of pricing and start it soon. Yeah, but I mean, I don't disagree. It is a part of the complex system of systems that we have to have. And congestion charging or carbon taxing is inevitably got to be one of the tools in the toolbox. Maybe you're right, it's probably the biggest tool in the toolbox in terms of driving behavioural changes. But bear in mind, too, we've also got the issue of domestic heating that's that's running in parallel and the cost of delivering that transformational change has got to be borne in mind in terms of you know, household affordability. Um, and it's it's going to be challenging. And we probably are we're paying nothing like enough for either our mobility or our uh, yeah, comfortable homes at the moment. And uh, our balance of priorities is, is possibly, probably going to have to change. We, we could we could have several of these podcasts about why we've got into that state and <laughs> yeah. why why the UK seems to be so uniquely bad at capital investment and keeping its capital stock and infrastructure up to date and minimising some of these things. But yeah, the, the scale of the problem is is really difficult. But again, one thing about the transport sector is that I think unlike domestic eating, where we're not quite sure how we're going to manage that, given a lot of the, the technological problems and the inherited um, building stock that Scotland has, we know what we need to do in transport and we know how to do it. Yep. It's not actually as if the technologies are not there. Yep. They're the bus and their shoe leather by and large. So if we're able to change the regulatory frameworks, um, it's not a technology that we need that we don't have yet. It's, it's the key to all of this. It's about behaviour change. It's about doing some more of what we all already do. 
I mean, I, I was going to ask, actually, looking across the world, I mean, is, is there anywhere that you, you would point to as saying, well, they are making the hard choices, they are doing this doing this well? Because it's a must be a shared global challenge in terms of mobility, particularly, obviously, in the developed world. That's, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think the answer to that is there isn't anywhere yet that's doing anything like enough. And Gordon made the really important point earlier on that we have to do more of everything, no matter how hard that is. You know, we just have to get on and do stuff we know works. I can't think of anywhere that's doing all of that yet. So you can find you can find examples of places which are doing um, individual elements really well. So, you know, the well-known examples are um, Norway, you know, amazing shift away from petrol and diesel cars to electric vehicles, far in advance just about anywhere else. But, well, partly that's because Norwegian consumers are rather well off by and large, and the government is able to, to support that transition. But then again, you know, what difference is that going to make to Norway's carbon emissions given its continued um, production in oil and gas? So, you know, the greenwashing um, point, I think, that many activists make is a well-made one there. Um, the Netherlands, of course, is always talked about as being this paradigm of sustainable transport. Well, their carbon emissions from transport are just about as bad as ours. So despite all of that cycling they have, um, Actually, they have more of everything. So the carbon footprint of transport in the Netherlands is just as bad. You know, so they haven't they haven't cracked that one. And Paris, you know, the absolute you know poster child of modal shift from cars to bikes now. And there's you know it's undeniable that that's made Paris a better place to be in. But actually, that's only the very dense centre in the middle. The suburban areas in the conurbation where well, two thirds, three quarters of the people in the Ile de France region live just as bad as ever because they're all car dependent. So what difference does it make to the overall outcome? You know, these, these things are really tough when you can point to individual sectoral um, examples of best practice and excellent, but nobody's cracked doing it all yet. And and we need to be mindful too, it's not it's by no means that, that, that will have the biggest impact, but Scotland is a is a rural and also an island uh, community and we do have other uh, essential services and uh, and probably essential journeys. From, from ferries uh, to consider too, and decarbonising those is a, uh, another uh, ob- objective. But the biggest impact will be land-based uh, buses, cars, um, trains, and uh, transforming the use of those and the uh, and the, uh, the fuel and the energy that's used to, to drive them. And I don't think anyone has got yet the the, the perfect model that I've seen uh, out there. And every and Every country is different anyway, because we do have different drivers, different values, um, different histories uh, as well. We've, we've, we've all, most of us come from carboniferous capitalism, um, and we need to be driving it towards the, the you know the the antithesis of that, which is carbon conscious uh, um, futures, uh, uh, which will still require capital and uh, the means of support uh, at a, at a, a population wide level. So it has been quite a pessimistic um, podcast uh, to use Ian's phrase earlier in terms of it's it's we clearly have got a real challenge. Emissions are high, then they're not reducing and behaviours are are potentially going to drive them further up rather than down. But I I guess I take heart a little bit from the but we know how to do it, um, which which you you said. So looking a a bit more positively to the future, I mean, there's a lot of debate in COP about the next 10 years. 
where would you like to see us be in 10 years time? If, if we were having a, a second podcast in, in 10 years, what would you like to be able to say to me in terms of, well, how are things different now? What's changed? Gordon, what for you? Yeah, very good question, because that's how we'll be. Uh, that's our key success indicator will be where we are uh, on, the, on the journey. And as we've heard, where we've been on the journey for the last 30 years is, uh, you know, level, level pegging. Uh, we've made absolutely no impact in the transport uh, sector, neither in Scotland nor in the UK as a whole. Uh, and some of the solutions, of course, are beyond the boundaries. Part of our system is the systems that we are dependent on. Uh, HTVs, trucks are travelling in and out of Scotland to uh, to the rest of Europe, and certainly to to the rest of the UK on very large scale. Uh, so we can't. So we're not we're not masters of our own destiny, hundred uh, percent. But nevertheless, we're a, a nation that needs to be uh, and wants to be seen to be leading uh, in the, uh, the the messaging that we're putting out. So we ought and and we must become leaders in reducing transport emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, and see, we seem to have made some achievements over the next 10 years. Um, I think, I think you know, the buses have got a massive role to play. I'd love to see electrified railways significantly have changed from 30%. You know, I don't know what a credible number is in the 10-year period. It, it, it does, these things do take time, but at least a, a, you know, inroads into the proportion that we have electrified and considering uh, and also considering uh, sensible and serious uh, investigations of, for instance, metro systems and light rail systems uh, that can deal with the movement of people where that's still part of the, the, the economic mix and needs to be uh, in order to avoid the use of the private car. And and seeing a real serious commitment and the way that we measure them and incentivize those having changed in order to give confidence for the subsequent 10-year period that this is a trend that isn't just a blip, it's a trend that will never reverse or credibly never reverse. Those are quite difficult, you know, made to, to, to deliver. But those are the those are the drivers that we 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 need to be seeing. Confident reductions that are have got a confident uh route towards continuing to a to a net zero uh, sensible uh, end target with and it's the substance behind the targets that's important and the demonstration of having reversed this current trend of no improvements in 30 years uh, into very very serious improvements over over the next 10 and as, as Ian said we can do it with a, with a serious commitment uh, and the mix of the uh, fiscal measures, the legislative measures, uh, and the uh, behavioural change, education—all of these things and others—we uh, might have a chance. Gordon and, and Ian, for you, what would you like to see in ten years' time be different? I think I think the point that Gordon makes there about having the trajectory established is a really important one. And remember, a lot of our milestone targets for 2030 are actually probably stiffer to meet than the 2045 net zero target everybody focuses on, especially in transport, because we've gone nowhere in 30 years. So um, where I would like us to be, um, I'll rephrase that by saying where I think we must be as a bare minimum. And I think we must have done the simple things that we know work. So we must change the way we pay for transport. 
which means we must price car travel differently because I don't think unless we do that, we can unlock any of the change that we need. Um, we must make public transport easier to use. And that means investment in the quality of the vehicles. It means a more robust and reliable and frequent service in most places. Um, and crucially, I think it means a proper national integrated ticketing scheme that we've talked about for decades and we haven't delivered. Best example of that recently is uh, in Austria, where they've rolled out the, the flat season ticket idea that's been in place in Vienna for a while to the whole country. So we need to make progress to that. There are capacity issues about how we provide enough services to, to cope with the demand that that would lead to. But, you know, we've got to crack that. And we know how to do it. Um, and I think we have to we have to get our everyday active travel um, proportion up. That means both walking and cycling, but I think it means in particular walking, because that's what um, the acid test about whether we've begun to move towards genuinely 15 or 20 minute neighbourhoods will be about. If more people really are walking, that means that they're accessing their everyday needs. The famous pint of milk um, question without recourse to motorised transport. And that's exactly the kind of thing that is the is the key test of whether we're serious about this or not. Professor Masterton and Professor uh, Doherty, thank you so much for sparing your time today to share your expertise and experience on transport, mobility and climate change. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. Pleasure. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks for listening. You can find previous Tea and Talk episodes on our website, rse.org.uk. Or you can subscribe on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. For our latest news, details of events and activities, search for the Royal Society of Edinburgh on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube.